as we were singing that song, it reminded me that we serve and worship a personal God. And we can call out to God. He hears us because we have a personal Savior, Jesus Christ. So we we are not going to um, have time this morning to take personal prayer requests from each person. But I thought it, um, we would spend just a couple minutes in prayer silently. Each of us carry many burdens, different prayer requests. Even this morning, Sheena and I got um, some serious uh health-related news of a friend, and so I'm going to take that to the Lord in prayer. And just want to remind you that what First Peter 5 says, that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So let's just take a couple minutes to pray silently. Gracious Father, we thank you that we can come before you, a holy God who's righteous and just. And Lord, you welcome us into your presence by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest and mediator and intercessor. Lord, I pray that you will hear our cries for mercy, our prayers, Lord, for your intervention, Lord, in various situations, whether it be a friend or family member who is hurting physically, Lord, I pray for different individuals right now that are struggling with anxiety or depression. Father, I pray for this church family, that you will bless them and encourage them in the weeks ahead. Lord, I pray that you will teach us to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, we do not walk Uh, in an irrational unbelief, but our faith is connected to your Son, Jesus Christ, and to your promises, to your purposes. Father, I thank you and praise you that many have gathered this morning to worship your name. So, Father, we come with heavy hearts for some, uh, light hearts for others. Lord, we each are walking different paths, and Lord, I pray that you would teach us to trust you in all things. Lord, you call us to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. You have shown your tender care and compassion towards your children, the children of Israel, toward uh, your people today, Father, your church, and those that have gathered here. Lord, I do pray for those who might not know you this morning that they might see afresh, anew, of your compassion and your mercy towards them. Lord, we thank you for this time together as we gather together. We gather with one purpose, and that is to glorify your name above all other names. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is a very lengthy chapter with a lot in it. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. If I could tell you where you would be one year from today, physically, and what your life would look like one year from today, would you be interested? Maybe, good, some people are saying no. (laughs) If I was making such a bold statement, you'd want to ask me, why am I making such a bold statement? Let me assure you, I don't know what your life is going to look like one year from today, where you will be one year from today. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. 
and, and uh, prophecy is not uh, a spiritual gift of mine. But the reason why I say that is because some are fascinated with prophecy in, in sometimes an unhealthy way. So this morning's passage uh, has to do with a question by the disciples as they are wondering what the future will look like. I mean, if we are honest, all of us have a question or two about the future, you know, about our employment, about our children, about something else. And so we might have a question or two, but we cannot get overwhelmed and over uh, involved in trying to figure out prophecy and things that we are not called to know. And so let us look this morning at Matthew chapter 24. And I will admit, there's there's just... There's just so much going on in this chapter. I mean, we could spend days trying to figure out this chapter. And I am going to read a lengthy passage of Scripture just because it's important for our context. And, as always, God's Word is important. But I will say as well, as I preach through this passage this morning, you may not agree with me on everything and on every aspect of my interpretation. And that's okay. You'll figure out later what is right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but that's okay. We There's different opinions on uh, Matthew 24 and 25. And um, it's good to have these conversations. But as we look at this chapter, we must remember who our teacher is this morning. Who our teacher is, is Jesus. And the early church, just like the church of today, should pay close attention to Jesus' words. And when Jesus speaks... We listen. When Jesus speaks, we submit. So the early church took the words of Jesus serious, so let us do the same thing. So let us stand this morning. I know we have stood a lot, but let's stand as we look and and honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word. We are going to read the first 35 verses of the chapter. This is a lengthy chapter of 51 verses, but we're just going to cover the first 35. So Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that's the question the disciples are posing to Jesus. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch bears tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray real quickly one more time. Father, we thank you again for your words. Lord, we thank you that they will not pass away. Lord, I pray that you will remind us that in the midst of signs and wonders and things that will yet be, Lord, that our eyes are to be fixed and focused on your Son, Jesus Christ. He is our teacher this morning. Father, as we look at a passage that uh, has a lot of uncertainty and things that I'm still sorting out, Lord, let us not be caught up in controversy, but Lord, let us get caught up in following your Son and being obedient to what you have unveiled for us to do. And Lord, I pray that we will seek to know your word and apply your word on a daily basis. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we are going to attempt, again, to try to tackle a large passage of Scripture. Just to let you know where we are at today and where we are going today, we're going to look at the first 35 verses very quickly, just an overview of 30,000 feet of some of the verses and um, barely touching on others. And then next week, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 26. It's going to be a very sweet time 
as we look at the words of Christ as it applies to the Lord's Supper. And so looking forward to that time. And then two weeks from today, we are going to do or look at Matthew chapter 28 and the Great Commission. It's going to be a great time. But for this morning, let's look at uh, what Jesus is saying and telling his disciples. He leaves the temple. He's going away. He's moving on in his ministry when the disciples come and they point out the buildings of the temple. Jesus is likely, according to commentators and historians, traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Bethany. On this road, it provided quite a view. You know, there's not a lot of skyscrapers or other things to block the view. It provided quite a view, perhaps a panoramic view, of the temple in the distance. There's a lot of videos on YouTube. I wanted you to see one real quickly just to kind of give us a glimpse. It was either show you a 30-second view of YouTube or uh, us all travel to Israel. So this was the cheaper route. So let's watch this quick video. Perhaps. Very good. All right. I told Jared just to see the first 30 seconds. And... Uh, even if we were to travel to Israel, it wouldn't be the same as that because this is during the days of Jesus. And this is just a model, but to kind of give us a bit of perspective of what the temple looked like and how it was stunning, how it stood out amongst the rest of the dwelling places. The temple was a place of prominence in the city. It was a massive structure. Again, I won't get into the dimensions, but you can look at those dimensions in the Bible. It was huge uh, as, as far as a building is concerned. And this place, this temple, was reserved for worship, but it had become, as many of you know, a place of idolatry. A few chapters earlier, Matthew 21, uh, Jack's not here this morning, he really wanted me to preach on Matthew 21, he's become such a student of going chapter by chapter, and uh, he's got Matthew 21 out on the sign, I said, don't worry, I'm going to reference it, he said, okay, good. But in Matthew 21, we see how Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple. We're not going to have time to go through that story, but Jesus saw the extortion that was taking place. Now, the operation of buying and selling was common, but the extortion was not. The, the market that sold pigeons and other animals were offering prices that were just ridiculous. They were taking advantage of the poor. They were taking advantage of those who come to worship. And those who were being oppressed were the poor, and this did not sit well with Jesus. In Matthew 21, he says the famous famous words of Jesus, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So the greed, the extortion, the oppression was real, and it did not sit well with Jesus. So he comes in, and many of us know Matthew chapter 21 as Jesus cleansing the temple. But that doesn't quite signify what took place. Jesus didn't clean the temple. It didn't become better after that. A better way of referring to, to it is Jesus judging the temple. Jesus judged the temple, and we know later that it was destroyed. He judged the temple. He curses the fig tree a few verses later. Both of these instances point out how rotten they had become. The temple, the fig tree, both of them are pointing out um, that they were not being used for what they should have been used for. So back to our passage now in Matthew 24. Jesus says to his disciples, you see all of these, do you not? As they are admiring the temple, he says, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Critics and um, skeptics of Jesus don't know what to do with this this phrase and this 
prophecy, this prediction, because it came true. And historians have shown that what his words, what he spoke here came to pass. And so Jesus spoke bold words here, Matthew 24, but they are true words. His words were fulfilled in 70 AD. This is kind of like one of those uh, markers in timeline that everybody puts down. This took place. Historians have affirmed it. In 70 AD, the Roman Emperor Titus led the siege of Jerusalem that led to the destruction of the temple. And many, much more took place there, but the destruction of the temple was one major event. Listen to what Josephus, a famous historian, wrote about this siege. He said, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any, they were serious as an army uh, was back then, there remained any other, had there remained any other work to be done, Titus Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple, but should leave as many of the towers standing as there were of the great eminence, of the great fame of those towers. But they were given orders to now go on and to destroy the temple. So Jesus' words were fulfilled after he spoke them. But now let's continue on. This is kind of a segue of what took place in the destruction of the temple to now the next section here. In verses 3 through 14, Jesus continues to teach and instruct his disciples on what is yet to come. The disciples, as we've seen before, they're the ones who begin the lesson. They're the ones who ask the questions. And the disciples, the curious bunch, they come and they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? There's these these key questions, the who, what, when, where, why, how questions. Here we see when and what they're asking of Jesus. When is this going to happen? What shall we look for? And so they're looking for answers from Jesus. And so the disciples ask about the time. They ask about the signs. And the disciples know that the present age will come to an end eventually. So I give the disciples sometimes a hard time or a hard rap, but they knew what was going to take place. They knew that this age would end. And so just like believers and churches today, many want to know what the future will look like. What signs should we look for? But it's interesting. It's almost like Jesus didn't hear them. Because he, you know, they asked this question and Jesus goes off over here. Jesus does not give them signs and years to look for. Jesus' instruction to the disciples and for us today is this. Do not believe those who seek to lead you astray. They are deceivers. That's his message. He says, there will be come, there will be some who come who rise up and say, look for this, look for this person. Do not believe them. So, in other words, they ask for signs and times and Jesus gives them a warning. Jesus says, do not follow those who lead you astray. Many will come claiming to be the name, to be Christ. I mean, I often think of, it's been a while now, uh, quite a while, but I always often think of David Koresh in Waco, Texas. But there, I mean, he's the big example, but there's many others throughout history who have claimed something similar. There are many false teachers that we must be wary of. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. 
There it says the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It's interesting, the key and the theme of this chapter is to endure and to persevere as believers. But many will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So people will not tolerate the truth. They will throw the truth to the side. They will they will throw um, the the true teaching um, to the side and disregard it. But Jesus says, do not listen to deceivers, to false teachers. One example um, is John Hagee. Hagee has said true things in the past, very few true things, but he's also warned many for years about the blood moons that will come and will usher in end times prophecy. Well, we just had a blood moon this past week. I think it was on Monday. And it did not confirm anything Hagee had written. He misuses scripture, he misinterprets history, and he misunderstands the role of the Jewish people. So we must not listen to those who promote false prophecies. Jesus said there are teachers like Hagee during the days of the first disciples who make their living based on deception. They get this crowd around them and they make their living with their books, with their, with what they say. But Jesus tells us to not be alarmed when you hear of wars because, what does he say? These are normal. He says wars are normal. And we, we know that. There's wars, there's rumors of wars that have been for thousands of years. Jesus tells us this must take place, but then what does he say? The end is not here. The end is not here. You must not be alarmed. God is not surprised. Jesus is not surprised. And we as a church, as the body of Christ, must be vigilant. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean we just say, okay, everything's fine. But we must be vigilant and be prepared for the return of Christ. We must be vigilant, but we can't say with certainty that the end is imminent. We are not the ones who can make that prediction. So we must be vigilant, but we can't say with certainty that the end is imminent. Jesus tells us that there are ongoing wars taking place throughout history. We can look at history in our lifetimes um, that speak of wars and famines and earthquakes. Just this past week, I had coffee with a uh, lots of cups of coffee. Lost it. Oh, there we go. One particular uh, meeting this past week. I had a couple with the church that spoke about the Gulf War and its impact on their family and on their lives. We we know of war. We've heard of war. We've had family members who have been in war. And so wars, famines, and earthquakes are a result of the fall. These are not signs of the end times. What does Jesus say in verse 8? This is one of those sermons that you just have to continually look back at the passage. And so I encourage you to read through the passages I'm preaching. And in verse 8, Jesus says, All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This is the beginning. This isn't the end. This is the introduction. Jesus is telling us this is just the beginning of the end. So we must take Jesus at his word and not be deceived by others who come with a purpose, and that is to lead us astray. In verses 9 through 13, I want you to see this. We, as the body of Christ, must expect persecution 
and tribulation as you endure in the faith. We must expect persecution and tribulation as we endure. Jesus tells us what life will be like in the days ahead. The disciples will face difficulty, but we must not divorce ourselves from the text. We too will face difficulty. We too will face hardship and tribulation. But as we go through this text, let me make an important distinction before we move on. Believers, those united to Jesus Christ, will not face the wrath of God. So that's point one. Um, uh, Believers, those united to Jesus Christ, will not face the wrath of God. And then, second, believers, those united to Jesus Christ, will face suffering as the children of God. Suffering is not the same as the wrath of God. Every believer will not suffer the things described in verse 9, and because I mean, you can look at this passage and say, well, I haven't gone through that. Am I truly a believer? That's not the point. We're not going to suffer the same things of verse 9 or even the, the horrible things mentioned in Hebrews 11, but some will. Some will suffer, and the suffering will be great. We could look at famous biographies of Ann Judson or William Tyndale or others that uh, that have been written about in the past and see glimpses of great suffering. We see in throughout Scripture how believers will suffer. Acts chapter 14, verse 22. It says that strengthening the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So we will, as followers of Christ, suffer. The suffering described here is a sharpening tool that reveals genuine faith or not. First Peter chapter one, verses six and seven says the same thing. First Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But these trials have a purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the trials have a purpose as we persevere. But also, the text points out, not all will persevere. Some will betray one another. Some will fall away. And some will reveal hatred as those who are being deceived. Jesus warns the disciples, and again, He warns us today of false prophets who rise to power and rise to deceive those who say we follow Jesus Christ. So there are deceivers who are coming. The wickedness and the lawlessness of mankind will continue to increase here in Matthew 24 and in the days ahead just as it always has. This past week I've seen on my social media feed and I've seen on the news of the horrible news that many of you are I'm sure aware of, the passing of the abortion law in the state of New York is one of those things where it just took your breath away. How could someone come to such a conclusion that you can abort babies even up to full term? Such a horrible law in many ways. There's a lack of love in the passing of this law. But Jesus says that even some who claim to follow God will grow cold in their love for others because they have been influenced by the corruption of the community that surrounds them. 
And so we shouldn't be surprised by such laws while it grieves us. It's a reflection of our hearts in the community that seeks to reject God's ways. Let's look at the next section. We're, we're going to skip verses 13 and 14 for a minute. But the next section, verses 15 through 35, speaks of tribulation and persecution that will come. And, and I'll admit, uh, there is much about this section that I'm still studying and still trying to figure out. So I just wanted to make seven observations. Like, seven observations? I thought we were winding down. But seven quick observations on verses 15 through 35. Number one, the abomination of desolation. There's a bumper sticker for you. It may not be what you think it is. There are end time books, preachers, and articles that will make many, take many verses out of context. So first, in verse 15, Jesus is referring back to the book of Daniel. When Antiochus Epiphanes, if I pronounce that right, built a pagan altar to Zeus on the sacred altar in the temple of Jerusalem and offered swine as the sacrifice. This is abominable. This is an abomination. It disregards God. It rejects his covenant and it is in defiance to God. So this is where we must understand the context and know our Old Testament and know the prophetic words in Daniel. This is pointing back to those to that time and to that situation. This is the abomination that causes desolation. But Jesus does use this Old Testament example to point forward to the fall of Jerusalem that would come soon. I do not believe it, it's applying to Jesus' return. The context would not make sense if it referred to his return. When Jesus come, it comes, it would be pointless for an unbeliever to try to flee, and a believer will not want to flee. So, the first point, the abomination that causes desolation may not be what you think it is. Number two, they're not all as long as number one. Number two, this section, verses 15 through 35, refers to a Jewish audience pertaining to specific events that would ex- that they would experience soon. Most notably, the Roman siege before 70 AD. Number three, the tribulation mentioned on several occasions in Matthew refers to distress, hardship, and suffering the followers of Christ face then and face even now. It's not referring to a future period of time. Number four, the elect are God's chosen people who will suffer but who will endure. This is a huge point. If you don't remember anything else, the elect are God's chosen people who will suffer but who will endure. We are called to endure and to persevere in our faith. The distress is difficult and it is intense only makes, and this only makes sense in light of what the Roman armies did to Jerusalem and the surrounding area and defiling the city, the temple, and the people. Number five, the passage teaches us not to be deceived by false teachers. Jesus' instruction to the church is, do not believe them. When they come, do not believe them. Do not listen to their message. Do not listen to what they have to say. Number six, there are parts of this passage that do point to the future, in particular when it references the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ our Savior. So what was eye-opening to me is that when we put this in context, the bulk of the passage is referring to the Jews and what they would experience and the coming siege of the Roman armies, not the future and tribulation. And so, 
But in saying that, there is part of this that do point us to the coming of the Son of Man. Tom Schreiner says this about Jesus' return. The assertion that the Messiah has appeared at this or that location should be rejected. For when Jesus comes, his arrival will be as clear as lightning that illumines the entire sky. So Jesus will come and all will know. Number seven, last but not least, the words of Jesus will last. The words of Jesus will last. We see this in verses 32 through 35. We must not take lightly the words of Jesus. We might not understand them all. I encourage you, if you understand all these verses, please enlighten me after the service. We might not understand them all, but we must understand Jesus' words are more certain than even the existence of the universe. With that being said, let us go back and look at verses 13 and 14 as we close. Verses 13 and 14 are crucial to this passage. Again, verse 13 says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. The disciples ask questions about when things will happen and how will they know the time is near. And Jesus responds with words that focus on living faithfully in the midst of uncertainty. And again, living with a sense of urgency, knowing that Christ will return. In the meantime, we must be faithful. Jesus is telling you and I today that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So you know what this does? This dispels the myth of just believe in Jesus and then do your own thing. That totally throws that out of the water. We are not called to just trust in Jesus as a kid or as a college student or as an adult and then go wander off and do our own thing. We are called to trust and to obey. We are called to trust and to follow. Jesus didn't say, come to me and deny your cross and follow me for the next month. No, he said, follow me. To be followers of Jesus means that we follow Jesus. So we are called to believe and the Holy Spirit gives us faith to keep on believing, to keep on to obeying. Romans 5 teaches that suffering produces endurance and perseverance. Suffering, many of you may be suffering in ways I'm unaware of, but do not waste your suffering. Your suffering is a is one way that God causes us to endure and persevere. Hebrews 10 teaches us to endure in doing the will of God so that we might receive what we have been promised. Colossians 1 reminds us the power of God will work in us to endure so that we might walk in the light. And then in Revelation, throughout Scripture, we are called to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, and to persevere in that belief. Revelation 14 says this, This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep His commands and remain faithful to Jesus. So we are called to be faithful and to persevere and to endure until the end. And Scripture says here, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, as we seek to be faithful, we must be focused on the gospel of the kingdom. The last verse we're going to look at this morning is 24, 14. And in verse 14, it says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
this this verse is similar to Mark 13:10 and it talks about the gospel of the kingdom going out to the nations or to the whole world. Well, what does Matthew mean? What does Mark mean when they refer to the all the nations or the whole world? Is this the great commission before the great commission? I don't think it is. When the phrase all nations or whole world is used, it's not talking about a comprehensive sense, especially in light of where we're at in the Gospels. The focus is on the whole Roman Empire. The boundaries of the whole Roman Empire were often considered the whole world. We see that in Acts 28, Romans 16, Colossians 1.6. So what Matthew is saying here is the Gospel is going to spread throughout the whole Roman Empire then the temple will be destroyed. This does not dilute the Great Commission because the Great Commission is coming. But when we read verse 14 and assume that Christ will not return until the mission of worldwide evangelism is accomplished, then we are saying Christ is held captive by the church. The church is not sovereign over Jesus in the timing of His return. We don't evangelize, we don't evangelize others and, and emphasize evangelism in order to speed up the timing of Christ's return. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. We are called to evangelize. We are called to share our faith. We must speak and testify of God's glorious good news. But we do it because Christ could return at any moment. We don't do it in order to hasten or speed up the timing of Christ's return. We proclaim the gospel of the kingdom because eternity is an urgent matter. We do it, we share our faith, we speak of the gospel because first and foremost, we love God. And we do it because we love others. We love our neighbors, our friends, our family members, those we've never met we speak the good news, the glorious news of the gospel. So in summary, I know this was like drinking out of a water, uh, a fire hydrant. But let me encourage you, church, as we look at Matthew chapter 24, you and I will endure persecution. The gospel will be proclaimed to the nations. It will happen. And the words of Jesus will last. And they will lead haven as we seek the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, as the people of God, as your people, help us to understand it. Father, I pray that you will help us to apply it to our lives. Lord, we ask that you might help us to endure. Lord, we are, are tempted to give up at any given day. We are tempted to throw in the towel. Father, I pray that you will help us to persevere. And Lord, we know from your word this is part of what the body of Christ is called to do, is to encourage one another, is to spur one another on, to remind one another of the gospel, to instruct one another of the truth. Father, I pray that you will teach us that there is purpose in our suffering. Teach us to... Um, carry one another's burdens in our suffering. And Father, help us to endure suffering, to endure hardships, knowing that the kingdom is coming. And Lord, we long for your kingdom. And Lord, until then, we pray, come Lord Jesus Christ.
And Father, I pray that you will teach us to speak the truth. If we, uh, as your people, have the truth, why would we not want to share it? So Lord, help us to speak the truth and proclaim that there is forgiveness of sins found in Jesus Christ for all those that we know and all those that you will put in our path. We thank you in advance. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.